Welcome to the Brownstein Hyatt Farber Shrek podcast series. Following the 2016 elections, there are many unanswered questions about what issues will dominate the agenda for our new president and Congress. In an eight part series, Brownstein Hyatt Farber Shrek's Washington, D.C. policy professionals and attorneys discuss their perspectives on the biggest issues facing the next administration. Brownstein's strategic advisors Barry Jackson and former Senator Mark Begich moderate bipartisan discussions on the first 100 days of Trump's presidency, as well as pressing issues like immigration, health care, financial services, tax and trade, education, infrastructure, and marijuana policy. In this episode, Policy Director Michael Levy discusses the impact of President-elect Donald Trump's economic team on his campaign promises of a populist agenda to generate change for those most in need. This is Mark Begich. Uh, I've served in the U.S. Senate from Alaska for six years, been a mayor of uh, Anchorage, Alaska, been on the local city council and also in the business world for many years. So I joined the Brownstein firm almost two years ago, and it's been a pleasure. And uh, the topics that we cover are enormous. So I'm just glad to be here to be able to have a conversation with so many talented folks. Well, thanks, Mark. I'm Barry Jackson, and along with Mark, I serve as co-chair of the strategic practice here at Brownstein. I'm one of only two people that have served as chief of staff to the Speaker of the House and senior staff to the President of the United States. And along with my colleague here, Mark, I think we can provide you a pretty interesting back and forth about the role of the Congress and the role of the White House as a new administration and a new Congress takes place. So let's dive in. We are joined this afternoon by Michael Levy to discuss financial services and the next Congress and administration. Previously, Michael was Assistant Secretary of Legislative Affairs for the U.S. Department of Treasury and Senior Advisor to Treasury Secretary Robin Rubin. Michael's government experience spans decades, also working as Chief of Staff to former U.S. Senator Lloyd Benson and as a staff economist at the Joint Economic Committee. Michael also served as a distinguished teaching professor at Georgetown University School of Business and as an associate professor at Texas A&M University, teaching courses in political science, public policy, and political theory. Thank you very much, Michael, for joining us today. We appreciate you being here and talking about what's going to happen in the next Congress, in the next administration. A lot of things have changed now. New election has occurred and new Congress in regards to financial services. And one of the big topics that you, you hear a lot about is what's going to happen to Dodd-Frank. But let's not, maybe you can give kind of a quick overview of what you think is going to happen with this new administration, maybe in the short term and the long term? Sure. Well, first of all, thank you. It's it's great to be here with both of you. Um, I think that the, the template one should begin to look at is the, is the uh, Choice Act that's passed the House of Representatives uh, last year, look at its component parts, and then say what could the Senate swallow if it needed 60 votes or it would even plausibly pass in the Senate, and I think that will be uh, the agenda. And I'd look at a couple things right off the bat. President Trump, uh, in a series of meetings with uh, Donors and business community executives said he hated the CFPB, so I think the Consumer Financial Protection Board will be on the firing line. I don't think it'll be overthrown. But in Can it be totally dismantled by well, his it, actions? Well, it, it could be. You could actually, if you wanted to, it could be overthrown not with an executive order by simply not 
the, the Cordray's uh, successor not taking the money from the Federal Reserve, and then he could, he could tear it down. But I think the most likely outcome is it'll be converted into a commission, and there'll be an attempt to make it um, subject to appropriations. And I think at least the commission would, would pass the Senate. That would be my guess. And I think then there'll be the question of whether Cordray stays for his full term or he's pushed out. And some of that will be dependent upon a, a court case now that will be will be heard uh, on bank about whether or not uh, uh, the president will be able to remove him uh, with cause or simply remove him at, at his will. Uh, if he stays on for a long time, for another year, or approximately another year, then there's going to be the question of what regs he puts out and will they be overthrown by uh, the, under the Congressional Review Act. For example, the petty lending um, rule has a huge amount of opposition, even among some Democrats, as currently drafted, but it's, it has, the final rule hasn't come out. So if the final rule is like the current rule, I would see uh, a, a big move to, 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 to destroy it. And if it's much more conciliatory than the than the draft rule was, the proposed rule was, then then perhaps it could it could withstand that kind of challenge. But I think the CFPB is absolutely on the on the firing line, and uh, I think it'll survive. Would be my guess, but it'll be a different entity uh, than it will be. And I, I just should add that interestingly, it probably was the intention of the Democrats when they passed Dodd Frank to to make it a commission, but and they assumed they would negotiate that away in negotiations with the. Uh, within the Senate, and that when the Republicans didn't want to negotiate at all but oppose, and, and the Democrats had to pick off four or five Republicans, then it stayed as a as a non-commission. But I think that probably Dodd's intention was to use that as trade bait. So, Michael, um, you're one of the few uh, wise men in Washington that have been both up on the Hill and in the White House dealing in Treasury. One of the things we hear about uh, with the Trump administration is they're probably not going to follow the management model that President Clinton and President Bush after him did, where you have a clear power centers, the NEC, the CEA, Treasury's role. The, the, they may actually try to turn all the economic power over to Treasury. And I'd like to just hear your views about what's the interaction or should be the interaction between a White House and Treasury. And now that you've got an all-Republican Congress, what's the Congress's role in either assisting or stopping a Trump administration, if they're trying to do something that the Republicans in the Congress think, no, nah, we really don't want to follow that. Let's take the first part, and then we we'll come back to the second part. I think it's an interesting question about what President Trump's managerial style will be when he's actually president. I, I, um, I think that uh, we were beginning to see glimpses of it now. He generally likes to have his hand in everything, I'm told as he runs his business, but then he gives a lot of authority to people who he's hired to do things. But then when the tough decisions are made, you know, he jumps in and he's all over them and, and that sort of thing. And I think that that's true of every president to some extent. What's, what's interesting on the economic team is that he hasn't really named uh, an NEC chief yet. So we just, I think that in the case of other areas, we can see a lot of control being held in the in the among his old campaign team and the people he's bringing into the White House, and I think whoever's the cabinet secretary might have trouble cracking that. But on the economic side, so far we've seen the opposite. So it may be that he will in turn give the the 
the Treasury Secretary a lot of authority, and the NEC and the Domestic Policy Council will be relatively unimportant. The Domestic Policy Council was relatively unimportant for President Clinton, but the NEC was was rather important. And uh, one of the things you find, of course, is that economic power is really greatly dispersed uh, among among different agencies. Um, President Trump has talked a lot about Mr. Ross going to commerce and how important it will be. But commerce really doesn't set an awful lot of these policies. It implements, implements a lot of policies, but it doesn't set them. You know, it enforces trade, but it doesn't negotiate trade and so on and so forth. So if you want USTR, commerce, especially Treasury, all to be coordinated, and then you want to have some kind of informal discussion out in the in the biosphere with the Fed, you need to have somebody in the White House coordinated, or you have to empower the Treasury Secretary in a way he probably hasn't been empowered for quite a while. So, so let's take the, um, if I hop in your your example about CFPB. So, would you be thinking that it would be Secretary Mnuchin's responsibility to take lead on either the dismantling or the change legislation? Uh, my guess is that in that case, President Trump would uh, sort of be like the Archbishop of Canterbury, you know, and the King of England. <laughs> Says this shall be. Well, even though he would say, uh, please rid me of this, uh, uh-huh. this scourge, you know, I think he would probably uh, signal to the Congress that uh, in some form or fashion that he's very uh, eager to see this reined in and then let them do the dirty work. I don't see him handing down legislation uh, or himself having to push it. I mean, I think that, that making a commission passes easily, for example. So let's, let's talk about the, the Congress side. So um, you've got Chairman Hensferling in the House whose views are pretty well known about his views on Dodd-Frank, CFPB, a lot of the financial service mechanisms. You think about uh, Senator Crapo coming in and taking over the committee. He's got Sherrod Brown sitting to his left there, who's probably 180 degrees on most of these issues. How is a Senator Crapo and, and a Chairman Hensarling going to work out their differences, and how are they going to deal with an incoming Trump administration that's probably a little more populous than either of them? And I'd add one more, and that is you have a, a Senator Warren right there who, right. you know, I think if she could be ranking member, she'd want to be, if not chair. But she's going to be kind of the watching over all of this activity. Right. And I think that to go to that point, the single biggest factor is that Hensling doesn't have a 60-vote rule, and on almost all the issues that will come before the banking committee, there will be a 60-vote point of order. So that empowers Elizabeth Warren. I don't think Sherrod Brown is going to put a lot of distance between himself and Elizabeth Warren in most issues. And I think Senator Crapo uh, is a person who uh, is interested in, first of all, doing something. The banking committee in the Senate has been relatively inactive in the last two years. Uh, and I think he's eager to do something, and I think he wants to do a few things that will succeed. So I think Chairman Hensarling will see his role as essentially setting the agenda from the perspective of uh, the Republican Party and the conservative movement. And Senator Crapo will see his rule as trying to find a center that leans right. And if he can win without Elizabeth Warren, uh, he will do that. Uh, If he can't win and needs Elizabeth Warren, he'll have to decide whether he wants to take up the bill in the first place or try to make concessions to her that are unacceptable. 
uh, to her and to Sherrod Brown. I don't want to suggest Sherrod Brown won't be important. He's very, very important, and he's got a mind of his own, and he's a very thoughtful person. But I think they are relatively ideologically aligned. I think Senator Warren really sees herself as the leader of the uh, opposition party, and the opposition party ought to be more like Bernie Sanders' opposition party than it's sort of Bill Clinton's opposition. Do, do you think, so, so, you know, in the first hundred days, you know, uh, President-elect Trump's going to have kind of his shopping list of items. My guess, you tell me if I'm wrong on this, this is probably not on that top list, but in the mill, you might say, not on his list, but wants it to be moving along because I think people are anxious in the financial industry. I think we're seeing markets respond and so forth because they see a picture of less regulation little more open market attitude in the sense of uh, Dodd-Frank not being as stringently enforced as it is today. So there's a lot of market response right now. Do you think, you know, it may not be, like I said, in that top 100 or 100 days, but it seems like the market is responding that this is an important piece of the well, equation. I think the market's responding um, a little less about regulation and a little more about stimulus. Mm-hmm. And, and uh, infrastructure investment, infrastructure investment deficits, higher interest rates, and what that means. Uh, higher interest rates um, might uh, um, well, look, mean one thing in the bond market, another thing in the stock market, right. and so on. Right. You know, yeah. but the banks are running up in part because people are anticipating higher interest rates. So, but, but let's talk about this. This the the market reaction. One of the things you saw. After the election was financial services, stocks took a big bounce. Um, People expected a lessening of Dodd-Frank and all, and there may be a little sobering up of this. One of the things we also know is that that President Obama was very assertive in executive authority and using the regulatory side of his powers. Uh, Do you foresee that on day one or in the first week, are there certain things in financial services where you could see the Trump administration immediately moving either in an executive order or a regulatory side that has big impact? Or do you think everything's going to have to be legislative? I think a lot of it will either have to be legislative or there will have to be changes in rules. Uh, I don't think – I think there will be a difference in tone and tenor. And that will matter. I think that when he finally gets his appointments in at the OCC and the FDIC, there'll be less emphasis on de-risking. And so banks won't be punished for financing payday lenders or, or gun, gun you know, people, this sort of thing. But the big issues out there are how to restructure the CFPB, how to change the SIFI designation, that sort of thing. And they have to be done uh, legislatively. I mean, I, I think the SIFI de- designation gets changed. But right now, what Chairman Hensling has in the in the uh, Choice Act actually isn't that popular among the big banks. The big banks hate the SIFI de- designation because it means over time they have to, once they've been designated systemically suspect, they have to bring them more capital. But what Hensling does is take away the designation, uh, probably gives the right to cure if there is some kind of a problem, but primarily gives you the obligation as your size grows to take on more capital, which they don't want to have to do. They've already taken on a huge amount of additional capital. So I don't see that, that Dodd-Frank gets dismantled uh, in executive orders. I see Dodd-Frank getting altered over time either by a longer-term regulatory process or by, um, by legislation. You know, I thought I read the, the incoming secretary, the nominee, uh, 
had issue with and taking on another financing area, and that's in the area of the housing that the the, the government guaranteed, yeah. uh, Fannie Mae, Freddie Mac, so forth. Um, do you think there's going to be some agenda there uh, that well, I think may there, or not I be? I think there will be. I mean, I think I, I think that's almost independent of him. I mean, I think had the Congress acted this year in a more aggressive legislative way, there would have been an effort to uh, privatize more of the risk. Mm-hmm. Uh, the new treasury, tre- the, the designee, I should say, the nominee, has, has stated that he wants to wholly privatize. Right, to Fannie move 100 percent that direction. 100 percent. I don't know that Congress will even want to do that, and I think that won't be an easy thing to do, in, in part because there's a substantial revenue loss if you do it. And plus there's constituent groups like the real estate industry. The real estate and, and housing will industry will oppose crazy. it, absolutely. Uh, I think uh, other small lenders will rather like it because they think there's no implicit uh, you know, bias toward the Fannie and Freddie's ability to borrow, but but I think the housing industry will fight it hammer and tongue, and this has always gotten in the way of of, of reform. You know, so Chairman Hensling had a pretty aggressive reform, and he couldn't even bring it to the floor uh, with all Republican votes because Republicans in in areas where housing is relatively expensive want that implicit subsidy. So I think that's extremely difficult to do, but I think there is a lot of consensus that on the front end and on the back end, you can privatize a lot of that risk Take, for example, more robust mortgage insurance and credit for more robust mortgage insurance. But in the middle, when you get into things that are more catastrophic and the market doesn't really want to insure that sort of thing anyway, I think that will stay with the GSEs. Let's, let's, let's talk about attention that's out there. And um, we've all seen it all, all of our years dealing with these issues. But the, the, the tension between small banks, large banks, the credit unions, um, ongoing fights, um, some people would say that one of the results of Dodd-Frank was a real blow to small local financial institutions. And credit unions felt and, like and they the got really unions. restricted. Yeah. So do you see in either what Chairman Hensperling's doing or is there a possibility that that kind of feeling, whether it was rules, regs, can get addressed? Uh Yes, that's almost without a doubt. And here's why I say that. In the Senate, uh, Senator Shelby had a very robust bank deregulation bill. The Democrats were willing to go along with a very high percentage of the small bank and credit union changes. And so that bill actually could have passed by itself this year if they had slimmed it down. So I see Senator Crapo, uh, for example, advancing something like that pretty quickly with more big bank deregulation things that are popular that can be more acceptable to to Democrats. But remember, anything you do like this has to get 60 votes on the on the floor. And so I would I would I would think that the concerns of the smaller institutions and the credit unions get addressed first and the larger institutions get addressed second. But I would expect in these two years a a dereg bill, and whether it's folded into a Dodd-Frank deal or it's done as a separate standalone rather quickly, I think it's an interesting tactical question. The Senate's actually further along on that than the House is. The House has, I'd say, has a huge backlog of things that passed the House that never went to the Senate, and many of them were were incorporated in that dereg bill, and many automatically thrown out. I think one of the big changes will be is actually the Securities and Exchange Commission will be different, and they will be less aggressive in stopping some legislative initiatives that, that are coming out of the House and, and the Senate, for that matter. Well, what it sounds like uh, is a long list, 
uh, a lot of changes, more open market deregulation kind of viewpoints, and we're going to see a lot of this probably early on in the process. I think we'll see proposals early on. I think it'll take a while yeah. to, to winnow it all out. And, and there still is some historic memory that uh, in two, you know, the deregulations that took place in the late 90s and, and in the 2000s uh, ended up growing uh, into a big set of, of problems that, that ultimately tanked the world's economy. I, I have a feeling Senator Warren uh, will remind us. I think uh, so, too. First, again, thank you, Michael, for joining us. Thank you for obviously being part of the Brownstein team that gives you have great uh, knowledge of the financial industry that helps uh, all of us. But So we thank you very much for sharing in the decades of service. Pleasure to, to be here with both of you. Thank you for listening to the Brownstein Hyatt Farber Shrek podcast series. Visit www.bhfs.com for more information.